John 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born, born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at, me, at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but, we, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake into, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God, God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and, and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been, has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for playing. That was absolutely beautiful. And uh, thank you uh, for um, Jane's sister. Anna has, has been here with us for the past few days. And uh, so we decided to put her to work. And uh, she did a great job. So praise God. Thank you, Anna. So our text for this morning... As Matthew read for us, is John chapter 3. Uh, we're looking at uh, verses 1 to 21. And uh, I had to say that as I began to prepare for this sermon, um, I realized that there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to get through this whole passage in, uh, in just one week. So I decided to, uh, to break it in half. And this morning we're going to be um, looking at, uh, at the first 13 verses, so John chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 13. Then next week we'll look at, at the, following, uh, the following seven verses. So before we, uh, we look at the word of the Lord together, let's, uh, let's commit our time to him once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Such a profound love that you would send your one and only, only begotten, holy Son to die for our sins. So Lord, we just pause 
and rejoice. That you would do such a thing for us. Lord, I pray that as we examine your word this morning, that, Lord, you would cause those who are truly born again to rejoice in new birth. Lord, to understand what it means to be born again from above. And Lord, if there are those who are here who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, we ask, Lord, that you would bring life through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask, Lord, that as we study these things, that we would submit our minds to your word. Lord, that we would lay aside false presuppositions and understand who you are and who we are before you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to say I'm particularly excited uh, to be able to preach this text to you this morning. And although I, I love the whole Bible and I love preaching every week, this text is particularly precious to me because it, is one, it contains one of the verses that the Lord used to draw me to himself. And uh, most of you here probably heard my testimony, uh, how the Lord saved me in a psychiatric hospital 20 years ago. But uh, six months prior to that, I was watching wrestling with some friends on TV, really edifying stuff. But uh, on that day it was, somebody held up a sign that said John 3.3, and uh, I thought, that sounds like it must be a Bible verse. Now, I had a Bible my mom had given me as a child, but I'd, I'd never heard the gospel, even to the age of, of 22. So I didn't say anything to my friends. I just went home and, and looked it up. And, and as I'm sure you're aware, Jesus taught in John 3.3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, this passage also contains... John 3.16, which is probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. You know, it's amazing, but I had not even heard of John 3.16 prior to that time. Crazy for a supposedly Christian country. And we'll be looking at John 3.16 next week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And if I had heard that verse, I probably would have given some sort of, of mental assent to John 3.16. Just shows how, in the popular mind, how, how faulty the understanding of John 3.16 is. And I've, as I'll talk about next week, it's, it's probably one of the most misinterpreted and decontextualized verses in the Bible, as much as it is one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. But on that day, I needed to know, as we all need to know, that you must be born again. When I read that verse, I knew that I wasn't. I knew that I wasn't born again. Now, beloved, I, I know people who say that we are Christians, but we are not born again Christians. 
There is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. There is only one kind of Christian, and that is the born-again kind. And that's what Jesus is going to be teaching us here this morning from John chapter 3. Remember that John wrote his gospel account so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 31. And so John presents the signs that are done by Jesus and the words that Jesus speaks as witnesses to the Messiah, the promised Savior and the Son of God, deity in human flesh. So when we know who he is and we put our faith in him, we receive eternal life. We receive salvation in his name. So John's gospel, in short, shows us who Christ is and who we really are. So as I said, I'm going to be looking this morning, focusing here on John chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And this is inclusive with uh, down to verse 21. This is the first formal section of teaching in John's gospel. This morning we're going to be looking, first of all, from verses 1 to 8. You must be born again. That's where I'll be spending the majority of, of my time. And then in verses 9 to 13, you must accept the testimony of Jesus. And next week we'll examine the final two points, for God so loved the world from verses 14 to 18a, and then this is judgment from 18b to 21. So I really would, uh, would like you to, to think of this whole thing as, as one sermon together, just broken in half. So first of all, you must be born again. Verses 1 to 8. See there in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So it would do us well to reflect for a moment on who the Pharisees are and what they taught. We went through this in detail a couple of years ago when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew, 5, sorry, Matthew 6 to 8. But the Pharisees had a reputation for holiness. Remember that to be holy is to be set apart for God. And even the word Pharisee means separatist. And the Pharisees had developed a rigid code of, of rules and ceremonies that went far beyond anything that was taught in the Old Testament scriptures. So their outward conformity to a set of of strict set of laws led the average Jew to think that they were the epitome of holiness. And I remember as, a, as an immature Christian reading uh, Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I remember thinking, if the Pharisees weren't good enough, what hope do I have? Now, even in my ignorance, without realizing it, I was actually on the right track. The Pharisees weren't good enough, and neither am I. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was teaching, if you remember, if you remember when we went through this before, what, where the scribes and Pharisees went wrong and where we can go right. So there's three things that Jesus came back to, and we'll see this throughout the Gospel of John as well, that the Pharisees added to the law of God, 
the Pharisees tried to establish their own righteousness and that their righteousness was only skin deep. Now, before you are, are quick to just say all those, those silly Pharisees, we need to think for a second about how easily Pharisaical thinking creeps into our minds. And we do the same thing. We try to add to the law of God. We try to establish our own righteousness. Or we try to, to do a righteousness that is only skin deep. It's a superficial obedience that does not come from a trust in the gospel. So this morning, as we think about what Jesus had to say to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit would have us also think about what Jesus is saying to us in this passage as well. Nicodemus here would have embraced the Pharisaical thinking as believing that they were the guardians of the true plan of salvation. And it wasn't just, just a Pharisee, he was, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, part of the, the, the ruling council, the judging council of the Pharisees. And then later on in verse 10, Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher in Israel. Not just a teacher, but the definite article is there. He is considered the teacher in Israel. So in John 3, verses 1 to 21, Jesus is confronting the beliefs of the Pharisees and turns Nicodemus' world upside down, or, or probably more accurately, right side up. In verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus here came by night in order to check out who Jesus really was. Now some believe that, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night out of fear. They assume that he came secretly so that the, the masses, masses and let alone the Pharisees wouldn't know that he was there. But this is conjecture. Scripture doesn't really tell us why. There could be many reasons why he came at night. Maybe this was the only time that he could come without the distraction of the crowds, or maybe this was simply most the convenient time. But we also shouldn't dismiss this as others do, that this is simply an irrelevant detail. John does not include irreverent details. The Holy Spirit, who inspired every word, does not include irrelevant details. The best way to figure out what's really happening here is to consider other times that John quotes Jesus referring to night. In John 9, 4, Jesus says, We must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In John 11.10, he says, But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So here we see that the contrast of light versus darkness. And this is a common theme in John's gospel. In fact, he's going to use this very metaphor. Uh, we'll see this in a couple of weeks later on in the chapter. When he says in... Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So we need to remember that, that these things, the, the, the breaks and the paragraph breaks and the, and the section breaks 
are there by men. They're not actually inspired by the Lord. It's so easy to break up Scripture and see this as a different thing, but this is a continuous thought. This is one chunk of Scripture that needs to be continued and viewed as a whole. Even though I'm going to, going to have to preach two sermons on it, there, there's, a, a, there's a, a, a whole conscious, conscious thought here. There's other times that, that night is used in John's Gospel. John talks about it in uh, John 13.30. Jesus, or sorry, Judas, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Also in John 21.3, when the Pharisees, or so when the disciples went back to fishing after the crucifixion, before they believed in the resurrection, they caught no fish, and it was night. It wasn't until the day dawned and the rays of, of the sun appeared that Jesus appeared and told them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat, and they caught an abundance of fish. So given these usages, most scholars have concluded that although Nicodemus did indeed come at night, this detail is included as a metaphor. As D.A. Carson explains, it's used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness. He says, doubtless Nicodemus approached at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. Augustine also suggested that it was symbolic of the darkness of the Jews' understanding. Given the double meaning behind much of John's gospel presentation, this is very likely the case. Leon Morris also says, Jesus is the light of the world, and it was out of the darkness in which his life had been lived that Nicodemus came to that light. So Nicodemus said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now this is a high honor. To be called Rabbi by not just any teacher, but by the teacher of Israel is a very high honor. But it is not nearly high enough. At least thus far, Nicodemus had no idea who Jesus really was. He didn't even acknowledge Jesus as a prophet, let alone as the Son of God. I remember a couple of years ago witnessing to a Muslim taxi driver when I was in Chicago. And, uh, and this, this taxi driver acknowledges, as we, as we spoke, they believe a great number of the things that we do about Jesus. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe that Jesus was sinless. They believe that Jesus is coming back to rule on earth. But they don't believe that he is God. They believe he is just a prophet and a lesser prophet than Muhammad. So when they say we believe in Isa, which is just the Arabic word for Jesus, they don't really believe in Jesus. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. Don't be fooled by the ecumenical movement that says we all believe the same thing. It's a lie. It's a lie. Unless you are acknowledging Jesus as the sinless Son of God, you are not acknowledging Him at all. Unless you are believing in Him as your Lord and Savior, you are not believing in Him at all. 
Now Nicodemus says here to Jesus, we, we know. It's not clear whether he's coming as a representative of a group of Pharisees or on a, of his own accord, but he, he, he does seem to be the lone voice speaking up for Jesus later on in John chapter 7, 51. But remember, at this point, Jesus really hadn't had any confrontation, any direct confrontation with the Pharisees. However, it is clear that later on, their hatred is going to become very pronounced, even only a couple of chapters later in chapter 5. And the position of the majority would deny his origin, saying, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. In John 9, 29. And their hatred would go so far that they would try to get the Romans to crucify him. And as we know, they succeeded in their attempts. But Nicodemus says here that the signs proved that Jesus was a teacher from God. And now it's interesting that Nicodemus here uses the plural signs because the Pharisees weren't witness to what had happened in Cana. So unless they probably had heard about it, but we don't know of any other miracles that he had done to this point. It is possible that John here is talking about the other, the other signs that Jesus did that he doesn't record in his gospel in John 20, 30. But the Pharisees did, did believe that the Messiah would perform powerful signs and that these signs would prove his divine origin. Remember, they just demanded a sign to authenticate Jesus' role when he, when he cleansed the temple, when he cast out the, the money changers and the merchants. And probably the Pharisees would have actually appreciated that. Because of their brand of, of separatism, they believed in an external purity and they wouldn't have wanted the, the money changers or merchants there either. They were more concerned with his authority in doing so as we talked about last week. This is true when Jesus cleansed the temple the second time in Matthew 21, 23. They questioned him saying, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now I know in the past I'd actually I'd wrongly concluded that they had sought to, to, to kill Jesus because of this incident of, of casting out these money changers, but it was a, it was a wrong conclusion because in, in Luke 19, immediately after uh, verses 45 and 46 where it describes Jesus' cleansing of the temple, Luke says in verses 47 and 48, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything to do because they were hanging on his words. It was the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus that caused them to want to kill him because it directly contradicted what they were teaching. It was his teaching of, of the washing of water with the new wine of the new covenant that they would come to hate. In Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter, sorry, lost my place there. Jesus knew here what was in Nicodemus' heart. So he says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now, whenever Jesus uses this formulation, truly, truly, or as King James says, verily, verily, it's literally, amen, amen. He's emphasizing a crucial point. He's introducing true salvation in this passage. It's a salvation that requires radical conversion. He's using the strongest of terms. He refers to it as being born again. Imagine that. Imagine having the opportunity to get a do-over, to get a, a reboot of your life. If you came to Christ a little bit later in life as I did, I'm sure that the, the remembrance of the things that you had done wrong is, is still clear in your mind. But in Christ, we have the opportunity to start over. And not just to start over to try to now earn our way into the kingdom by our righteousness, but to start over in the righteousness that Christ gives. I've heard the analogy of, of students walking into a lecture hall on the first day of the, of the new semester. And the professor saying to the students, you've all got an A++, have a good year. And that's what it's like for us in Christ. In Christ, we have a do-over, but we have been given his perfect righteousness. We are counted perfect. We are in Christ. Because it's as though every good deed and every good word that Jesus said has been given to us, has been credited to our account. So this isn't just any do-over. This is the ultimate do-over. Jesus refers to this being born again three times. He does it again in, in, verses, in verses 5 and 7. Now this is another example of the double meaning that's often there behind the words of Jesus quoted by John. He uses it this way also a few, a few verses later. When he talk, the, the, the Greek word here is, is anothen, which, which actually can, also, can either be translated again or can be translated from above. It's a, it's a double meaning. And both are true. You need to be born again, and you need to be born from above. In verse 31, Jesus says, He who comes from, ab from above is above all. Anothen, it's the same word. So you must be born again. And you must be born from above. The immediate context teaches both. Unless you were born in this way, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't see it, let alone enter it, unless you were born again. Jesus here came to inaugurate his kingdom. In order to see it, you have to be born again. In order to understand who Jesus is and what he is doing, you need to be born again. You need to be regenerate. The Holy Spirit has to have done a work in your heart. 
Nicodemus doesn't understand, and he asks an inane question. He asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time, into his mother's womb, and be born? So Jesus takes it further. He says in verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is making it clear the new birth is capital S spiritual. Now, there's a number of of interpretations that attempt to explain what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. Some here take it to refer to baptism. But we need to remember that Christian baptism hadn't even been introduced at this point. And if it refers to John's baptism, if a baptism of repentance is in view, then why is it not commanded anywhere else, that particular baptism of repentance? And why is it superseded later on by Christian baptism? Others refer to it, or think it refers to the natural birth, but that doesn't work either because how could it, how could it refer to a natural birth and, that, and the natural birth being a, a component of new birth when throughout this passage, Jesus is di- differentiating between a natural birth and a spiritual birth. So I believe the water that Jesus is referring to is the water of purification. Remember, Jesus had just turned the water into wine back in chapter 2, being representative of the new covenant, that the old outward water of purification was was being overruled and, and replaced with the new wine of the new covenant. John MacArthur says it like this, The water was a symbol of cleansing. H2O water isn't even there in verse 5. That's not talking about water water. That's talking about purification in the inside. So he's saying, except a man be cleansed and purified, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this whole idea of, of waters being symbolic of purification is also common throughout the New Testament. We saw it there in, in John chapter 2. But also in Ephesians 5.26, where husbands are called to reflect Christ by washing their wives in the water of the Word. And furthermore, since Christ is our high priest, we are all to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10.22. So this is the water of regeneration. He's contrasting unrighteousness. Paul is contrasting unrighteousness with the righteous in 1 Corinthians 6.11 where he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this new birth is by the Spirit, by the Spirit of our God. But the world didn't know Jesus. His own people didn't know Jesus. But Remember in John 1, 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. It's all of God. The new birth is not by the will of the flesh, but by 
the will of God. Now, thankfully, our salvation doesn't depend on our free will because we don't have free will apart from a work of regeneration in our hearts. Yes, man is free, but he is only free to choose according to his nature. And a dead and unregenerate man is unable to choose God because an unregenerate man is captive to sin. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Not just sick. Not just mortally sick. Dead. Dead. And by nature, a child of wrath. By very nature. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we were dead, but God has made us alive. This is what the new birth is all about. This is what regeneration is. It means to be made alive by God. James 1.18 teaches the same thing. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And 1 Peter 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, you've been born again. Unless you are born again by the Spirit, you will never see God's kingdom and you will never enter God's kingdom. Now maybe Jesus saw the stunned look on Nicodemus's face, or maybe he was reading his heart, or maybe both. But Jesus said to him in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He explained further in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now this is another play on words. Both the Hebrew ruach and the Greek pneuma can be translated either wind or spirit. You don't know where the spirit will work. You won't know, you will not know to whom the spirit will reach. That's why when someone asked C.H. Spurgeon about why if he believed in God's sovereignty over salvation, he preached the gospel. And Spurgeon said, if, if, those who are, who, if those who are predestined, if the elect had a yellow stripe down their backs, I wouldn't be a gospel preacher. I would be a shirt tail lifter. We don't know where the Spirit of God is going to work, so we preach the gospel. Trusting that God is going to sovereignly make alive, that God is going to work by His Spirit and give the gift of salvation 
to regenerate dead hearts. You don't know where the Spirit is going to work. And Jesus here draws the analogy to the wind. Even with our, our modern meteorological techniques and technology, we still don't have the ability to understand where the wind is coming from or where the wind is going or even to, to predict it with any degree of accuracy. If you've ever been on the Okanagan Lake in a summer's afternoon in a small boat, you can see how suddenly the wind will spring up and there will be waves and whitecaps that are, are so big that, that guys will even surf on them. You don't know where the wind is going to blow. You don't know where the Spirit is going to go. We can see the effects of the wind, but we can't predict where the wind is coming from or where it's going. Now, there might be some allusion here to Ezekiel chapter 37, where the Spirit of the Lord says to the prophet, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So here again we see the, the Spirit, the breath of God, giving life to dry bones. And so what's happening here is Nicodemus, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you don't understand how the Spirit works. You don't understand regeneration. You don't understand salvation. You don't understand who the Spirit is going to work in. It may, it may, even as we'll see next week, it may extend even to the Gentiles. Now, Leon Morris says here that Nicodemus and all his tribe of lawdoers are left with not the slightest doubt that what is asked of a man is not more law, but the power of God to remake him completely. The new birth requires a radical heart, not radical laws. Then in verses 9 to 13, you must accept the testimony of Jesus. Nicodemus is shocked in verse 9. He says to Jesus, how can this things be? Jesus told him not to be surprised, but he's shocked. Even after Jesus has explained, Nicodemus is skeptical. It's not, as though he it's not that he doesn't understand intellectually. He does not understand spiritually although it is an incredibly profound truth, the gospel is quite simple. It's simple enough even for a young child to receive and to be saved. But as learned as Nicodemus was, to this point at least, he didn't get it. He's demonstrating that he is not born again. So Jesus responds to him, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? As somebody who was supposed to be an authority of Old Testament scriptures, he should have known. 
And one of the most important prophecies of the new covenant in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, please turn there. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. The prophet says, I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my words. We have no further remarks from Nicodemus recorded here. Jesus silences him. So did Nicodemus really believe that God was with Jesus? I don't believe so. Jesus continues in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. The you here is plural. The Pharisees, you Pharisees, have not received our testimony. Now, although Jesus would, would seemingly stand up, as, as Nicodemus would stand up for Jesus later on in John chapter 7, and although he would later come to anoint the body of Jesus after the crucifixion, it seems at least for this point, he would, could be described, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 23, as one of those who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but he was one of those that Jesus didn't entrust himself to because Jesus knew all people. He seemed to be one of the, the Jewish leaders who believed in Jesus, but because of fear of the Pharisees, he did not confess it so that he would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John 12, 42 and 43. R.H. Lightfoot describes Nicodemus as containing a definite but limited amount of strength, a definite but limited amount or perception of the truth. He's one of those who, who had seen the signs and had a, a measure of interest. His curiosity was aroused and he, and he seeks a further understanding, but he doesn't put his faith in Jesus. So Jesus says to him in chapter, in, in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Hendrickson says that the earthly things that he has been speaking of are things that, that although they're in heavenly in character and origin, actually take place on earth. So although the, although the, the new birth comes from above, it takes place on the earth. It is earthly in that sense. But it's clear from chapter 1, verse 11 and 26 and chapter 2, verses 4 and 9, that although such truths, although clearly taught even in the Old Testament, were rejected by men like Nicodemus. A.T. Robertson says that the heavenly things are those things that take place in heaven, like the deep secrets of the purpose of God in the matter of redemption, such as the necessity of lifting up Christ. We'll look at that next week. But Nicodemus couldn't see because he was not born again. 
Then Jesus here testifies. He says that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now in John chapter 1, verse 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came from heaven. The the new birth is of heavenly origin, and so is Jesus. Now, if I were to tell you about the country of South Africa, it would just be hearsay. I've never been there. I've only seen pictures of it in books. But Dave and Wend are authorities. They lived there for many, many years. It was their home. So if you want to know about South Africa, ask somebody who's been there. Ask somebody who lived there. But Jesus didn't just live there for a little time. He wasn't created at the the beginning of the creation of the earth. He had been there forever. He is the eternal Son of God. And Jesus is just, he is over the house as the builder of the house. Hebrews 3.3. Jesus didn't just go there. He didn't just go there. It is his realm. You cannot separate heaven from Jesus. You cannot separate the kingdom of God from Jesus. Jesus came to inaugurate it in his first incarnation. And he's coming again to establish it upon his return. So do you want to see the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Then you have to, you must be born again. You must receive the testimony of Jesus. Jesus is speaking with absolute authority because he is God the Son. So we receive his words in faith. There's things that are are hard to receive. When he says that the new birth is spiritual, it's hard to understand, but we receive it in faith because Jesus says it. When we read what Paul wrote about being dead in our sins and trespasses, but made alive by God, we receive it in faith because the Holy Spirit inspired him to say that. So we submit ourselves to who God is as he presents himself in his holy words. And most of us, I trust here, have been made alive. Most of us here have been born again. They are born again. But they're very likely. People who are here this morning who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. They might even have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. 
And God is calling you, saying you must be born again. This is a command. And if your, if your response is, is, I can't, I'm too wicked. God doesn't just command you, he gives you the power to be able to do what you could never do on your own. So come to him. Come to him and find eternal life in Christ. But even for those of us who are genuinely born again, we, we still tend to default towards legalism. We still easily default to, to a pharisaical way of thinking. So we need to let these words of Jesus silence the inner Pharisee and remind ourselves of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That salvation from him is a free gift received by faith. Let's pray.